A warm welcome to all of you, including those who are online. I'm glad to be here to bring you God's word again. Let me open up with a word of prayer. O gracious God, you know all things, you know our thoughts. And so we pray, Lord, that the meditations of our hearts and the words that I speak, Lord, may that be pleasing to you. We pray this through your Son's name. Amen. Now, if you're anything like me, if you have any kind of question, the first place that you would go and look for in an answer is probably in terms of uh, Google, if I can get this thing to kind of figure it out, you know. Yeah. So let's say if you wanted to find out what's the number of pi up to 21 digits, you go look up Google. If you want to find out what the speed of light is, you go look up Google. And it, the fact is that uh, Google indexes billions of web pages that allow users to search the information desired through keywords and operators, and the search results are generally pretty good. All right? In the sense that, as it being the first resource to look up any information, Google is close to being perceived as omniscient or all-knowing. Almost omniscient or all-knowing. But in the interface for Google, it's not the most uh, natural, all right? So enters up now with OpenAI and a ChatGPT, which is a chatbot that's uh, developed by OpenAI. Now, it has this omniscient, all-knowing-like quality that it can do your homework for you. It can also pass the U.S. medical licensing exams, all right, without cramming. All right, and on top of that, you know, it can churn out college essays and it can write research papers. Pretty hefty. So I tried to see if it can do my work for me, so I asked it to write out today's sermon for me, all right? <laughs> and this is what it produced. And let me just read a couple of sentences from it, all right? It says, dear brothers and sisters, today I want to speak to you about one of the amazing attributes of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his omniscience. Omniscience is defined as a state of having complete or infinite knowledge. Our God is omniscient, which means that he knows everything past, present, and future without limit. And then it goes on to use a passage from Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4, an exact passage which I was going to use, you know that? And it, I mean, what ChatGPT can do is quite amazing but yet also a little bit scary, all right? So ChatGPT and Google, you know, they have this omniscient-like quality, but it is not omniscient at all. It is not omniscient. And here, scripture, however, does speak of one, God, who is totally omniscient, as being truly omniscient, meaning that he knows all things, things that have happened in the past, Things are happening in the present and things will happen in the future. God knows things in the past, present, and future that will actually happen. And he's able to do that because God is not trapped in time. God is eternal. God exists outside of time. So therefore, God sees the past, present, and the future simultaneously all at once. But God doesn't know all things actual. 
only, he doesn't know only all things, actual meanings, all things that will actually happen. God also knows all things that will possibly happen. He knows all things that will possibly happen. So in 1 Samuel 23, you know, when David inquired of God as to whether the people of Caleb, whether they would hand him over to Saul if he should remain in the, in the city, God said they will. And so that's why David decided to run out, of, out, not stay in the city. So God knows all the possible permutations of all the po actions that we can take, even those that will never come to pass at all. So the subject of God's omniscience is complex. Uh, it touches on difficult issues like God's providence and free will. But we'll just focus only on one aspect, which is the first six verses of Psalm 139. It's a psalm that's written by David. And in these verses here, we will find out that God knows three things about us. Here, God's knowledge, three characteristics of God's knowledge concerning us. Firstly, that God's knowledge of us is personal. Second, God's knowledge of us is complete. And lastly, God's knowledge of us is double-edged. God's personal knowledge of us is personal, all right? It is complete and it's also double-edged. And after running through all of these three points, I'll then come up with the big idea and then I'll draw some implications for our lives. But let's then first take a look at the first idea here, which is God's knowledge of us is personal. And it begins here with verse one. Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. The word know there occurs quite often in the psalm here. It occurs in terms of four times here. And the word here connotes not just knowledge, but it connotes here in terms of the sense of concern, the sense of intimacy, and these verses here, meaning that God does not just know things about me, but rather that God knows me. His knowledge of me is not just cognitive, I am not just a data point that is stored in this database, which is then accessed and then manipulated. Rather, his knowledge of me is personal, it's intimate, and it's relational. I mean, it's just that I know about President Biden, but I don't know him the same way that I know my daughter or the same way that I know my wife, Karen. The knowledge that I have of my wife is personal, it is intimate, and it's relational. So the personal and relational quality of God is something that we see in this psalm. And it's also seen here, you know, when you take a look at this psalm here and notice the personal pronouns that are being used. Notice the you and the I, you and the I that happens, that runs through these six verses. So that the knowledge that God has and the relationship that God has with me is not an I-it relationship, but an I you relationship. I am not an object that is meant to be just scrutinized, a data point, but that I am a person that God relates to. God relates to me in terms as a person, not as an object. And the personal relational knowledge of God is then also seen in the way that the God is addressed. God is addressed with all capital letters there, L-O-R-D, Lord, which usually that means that that is his covenant name, that is Yahweh. And the name of Yahweh then is really described his covenantal relationship with the people of God. 
And so that just by the use of Yahweh there, it again uh, identifies and recognizes that God is the one that wants to establish a relationship with his people and that his knowledge of them is relational. It is intimate and that it's personal. God's knowledge of us is also experiential and re relational in that he allows himself to be moved by his knowledge of us. He allows himself to be moved by his knowledge of us so that he rejoices over his people because they are precious to him. Yet it is because they are precious to him that he is also grieved and that he weeps for his people when they sin. So God's knowledge of us, you know, it's not impersonal, it's not detached. Rather, it is intimate, it is personal, it is relational, and it is involved. In summary, God's knowledge of us is not merely comprehensive, like a machine or a video recorder that's always taking objective data of me. Rather, it is personal and it's relational. So the first point is that God's knowledge of us is, relation, is personal. Now let's take a look then at the second idea here, in that God's knowledge of us is complete. God's knowledge of us is complete. In verses 2 to 4, it says that you know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. Now in verse 2, it just tells us that God knows all our external actions. The language of when I sit down and when I stand up, that is just a literary device to indicate that God knows every move. God knows every action that I will take. And then it goes on to say that you understand my thoughts from afar. So God not only knows our actions, external actions, he also knows our internal thoughts here. The thoughts here are not just the content of what we are thinking, but also the motivation of why we are doing certain things, or the goal of why we are doing certain things. And he knows it from afar, so that even though God is in heaven, yet that distance does not become an impediment to him to knowing us. So that ultimately here, God knows us here, even though he is in heaven and residing in his throne here. But this language of that he knowing us, even from far away, Augustine uses these verses to tell us that God also knows us even when we are spiritually far away. So using these verses and incorporating that into the story of the prodigal son who was in a far country, yet that son was still an open book to the father. So that even though when the son was far away, yet God sees him and still runs to meet him and greets the son when the son returns. So that God knows us from afar. And so that even in our darkest night, even in the darkest night, God still sees and knows us because darkness is as light to him. Darkness is as light to him. Now in verse 3, you know, it goes on to say, you observe my travels and my rest. God knows our daily habits. God knows exactly how far I will go when I travel, the traffic that I face, the time that I will be spent in the traffic jam here, the time that I will take to get to my office. 
God knows all of that. God also knows how much I rest, how long I will sleep, how much time I spend on YouTube, you know that, when I take a break from writing my sermon, all right? God is aware of all my ways. God is aware of all my daily routines, my habits. God knows that when I get up, the first thing I do is make myself a pot of coffee. Then I do my exercise, and then I listen to my Bible reading plan. You guys are all doing that, right? The chronological Bible readings. <laughs> so God knows all of our habits here. He knows when I get up and when I stand. But that, on top of that, God also knows our future. So that in verse 4, before word is on my tongue, you know all about it. God knows our future even before we speak it or even before we frame the words that we want to say, God already knows them before we say them. Now, if you live with somebody long enough, you know, you kind of can predict what they're going to say, right? So that uh, I lived with Karen for many years, right? And so that when I get stressed about writing my research papers, about grading, about prepping for classes, she always say, you know, hey, no one's dying. Just chill down, <laughs> all right? And it's just a way to calm me down so that I can kind of predict what she will say in certain instances. But God's knowledge here is not predictive. God's knowledge here is actual, meaning that God exactly knows what David will say exactly in every situation before it happens. This then suggests that God's knowledge is not constrained by time. He knows the future. He knows what we'll encounter. He knows what we'll say. He knows what we'll experience even before it happens here. So in summary, you know, God's knowledge of us is complete. It is exhaustive. It is perfect. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows our aspirations. And he knows our future. And this then brings us to the last point here, that God's knowledge of us is double-edged. And it says here, you know, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand upon me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. There's a shift in tone from these two verses, from the first four verses to the last two verses here. Previously in the first four verses, the tone is positive. It is comforting. It is confident. Now the tone here is somewhat ambivalent. So that scholars begin to say that the tone here can either be taken in a positive or a negative sense. There is even possibly a sense of anxiety regarding God's personal knowledge of us. So that the first word, you know, you have encircled me. You have encircled me. Positively, it can be taken to say that God is protecting us, enclosing us, and safekeeping us. You know, like, just like we have a kind of a hedge, we have a kind of fence in our backyard to kind of protect us. But negatively, it can mean that God is restricting us, confining us, and the term encircle is also a military term that is used to besiege a city, to encircle a city here. And I mean, yeah, this almost this sense, you know, God places his hand over us, and it's almost like, just as you would place your palm over an insect on the table to kind of trap it. So there's a sense here that the possibility of an encircle could also mean that we are in the in sense of besieged by God. The language here, you have placed your hand on me, 
could also be taken positively or negatively. Positively could mean that God places his hand to bless us, to protect us. Just, you know, just as God placed his hand over Moses to protect him as he passed by. So it could be used positively in the sense to protect. But at the same time, God's hand being placed upon you could also be used as a sense of destruction and punishment, just as God raising his mighty hand against the Egyptians. So the language here is somewhat a little bit ambivalent here. And David here, the psalmist who wrote this Psalm 139, he says that this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. The language of wondrous here need not necessitate a happy response or pleasing response, but that God's knowledge is something so extraordinary, it is hard to understand, it is supernatural, it is something that demands awe, fear, and respect. And this kind of knowledge here is awesome. It is supernatural. It is not human. And David says, I, it is lofty. I am unable to reach it. I am unable to climb over it. God's knowledge here is unattainably high, like that of a fortress, like a sheer cliff that you cannot scale it so that even a warrior of David's caliber cannot reach over it so as to escape from it. It is so lofty, it is so high. Now here, if you've been to Yosemite, this is El Capitan here, it's a 3,000 vertical cliff here. 30 people have fallen and died trying to scale this cliff. Now this is Alec Tono here. In 2017, he managed to scale El Capitan using only a bag of chalk. It's quite an amazing feat. But if Alex Hono is able to scale El Capitan, he would not be able to scale the walls of God's knowledge. As David says, you know, I do not have the power to scale it, to escape from the walls that surround me. So in these verses here, you know, we find that God's knowledge of us is double-edged. It is both positive and negatively. Positively, God's knowledge of us can be comforting. Negatively, God's knowledge of us can be terrifying. It is scrutinizing. It is concrete here. So let's take a look at then at the three points that we kind of gathered here in the psalm here. That God's knowledge of us is personal. God's knowledge of us is complete. And that God's knowledge of us is double-edged. And the last point raises a nagging question. If God's perfect knowledge and complete and exhaustive knowledge of us, is that terrifying or is that comforting? It can be terrifying because God's knowledge of us is likened to Big Brother constantly watching over us. And so that one journalist here, Christopher Hutchins, he's an outspoken journalist, outspoken atheist here, he characterizes God as the celestial big brother, echoing George Orwell's 1984 here, that is always watching us, trying to catch us when we do wrong, waiting for us to trip up, always ready to punish us when we are wrong. And this idea is encapsulated also in the pop song, you know, in the 1980s, High in the Sky by the Alan Parsons Project. 
the song that goes, I am the eye in the sky looking at you. I can read your mind. I am the maker of rules, dealing with fools. I can cheat you blind. And I don't need to see any more of you to know that I can read your mind. And we can see the scary effects of such constant watching today in several surveillance states where the intent of the surveillance is to maintain social control and to shape the will and opinion of the people through the sophisticated harvesting of digital data. That can be scary. That can be terrifying. But the idea here, you know, that God is like Big Brother, it's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. For God's omniscience, his all-knowing, cannot, cannot be separated from God's mercy, his compassion, and his goodness. Yes, we stand naked before the penetrating gaze of God, ashamed of all the wrong that we have done. But God has also provided for us a way out to escape from our shameful nakedness before him. And we see this most clearly in Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in eating of the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat, their eyes were opened so that they discovered their moral condition, that it was pitiful. They recognized that their spiritual nakedness, they experienced shame because of it, and they felt shame for the wrong that they had done. So what did they do? They tried to hide. They tried to hide from God. They sewed fig leaves to form skimpy loincloths. And all of this is to try to attempt to cover up their shameful nakedness before the all-knowing and the all-seeing God. God, however, in his mercy, deals with their pitiful efforts. He provides garments for them made from animal skins. And the word for garment that God provides is the same word that is used to describe the tunic that Jacob gave to Joseph. It was a long tunic. So that instead of skimpy loincloths, God provided them with long tunics that were made from animal skins to cover up their shameful nakedness here. God did it because we are unable to cover up our own shameful nakedness. God is only able to do that. God is only the one that's able to do that. And the death of the animal then points forward to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who takes away not only our sin, but also our shame here. Our efforts to deal with the shame of our sin is inadequate. Only God can adequately redress our shame through the person of Jesus Christ. So that when we clothe, when we clothe ourselves with Christ, we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. So that when God sees us, he does not see, he does not see the shame of our spiritual nakedness, but rather he sees the glory that stems from the righteousness of Christ. And that's why Paul says in Galatians here, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith 
for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, those who put their faith, who put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not spiritually naked. They do not need to be afraid of God's penetrating gaze. On the contrary, God's constant knowledge of all of our movements, they become a source of comfort. For God knows the struggles and the pain that we are facing. And this then brings us to the main idea here, you know, of these six verses that God's perfect knowledge of us, it's not a threat. It is not a threat. But instead, it is a comfort to those who belong to Christ. God's perfect knowledge of us is not a threat, but a comfort to those who belong in Christ. Now, let me draw out some implications here for us here. Some implications. The first implication here is that God's perfect knowledge of us is a warning. It is a warning especially to those who do not belong to Christ. And it reads here in Psalm 90, right? You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of our presence. Our secret sins are not hidden from God. Also in Job 34, for his eyes, God's eyes, watch over a man's ways, and he observes all his steps. There's no darkness, no deep darkness, where evildoers can hide. God sees all the wrong we have done. There is no secret sin that he does not see. There's nowhere safe that we can hide unless we hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting that he's able to give us the righteousness that we need in order to stand before the penetrating gaze of God. So if there are some of you who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, please come speak to me. Please come speak to Pastor Tim. We'd love to share with you in terms of the good news that God has given us, good news in Jesus Christ that allows us to stand before the presence of God unashamed. So the first thing, you know, first implication here is that God's personal knowledge of us is a warning, especially for those who do not belong in Christ. But at the same time, God's personal knowledge of us is a comfort to those who belong to Christ. Firstly, because he knows our struggles and fears, and he cares for us. I mean, Jesus said that even a sparrow does not fall to the ground outside of the Father's care. God's knowledge of us is so perfect that he knows how many hairs there are on, uh, on your head. And it's because of God's omniscience that it cannot be divorced from his love or from his care of us. We know that everything that happens to us happens within God's providential care. And it will never surprise, it will never frustrate God's plans to us and that we can therefore trust in the Heavenly Father in the midst of our difficulties. The second way in which God's knowledge of us is a comfort in that here he can guide us forward out of a life that is filled with regrets. I mean, we often have past regret about past decisions that we made. If only I knew this, I wouldn't have done that. If only, if only, if only. In the midst of a life that is filled with regrets, we remember that we are finite. We are not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. And therefore, we are bound to make decisions that appear not to be wise 
only look back in time. I mean, I can look back in my past, in my teen years, and recognize how foolish I was and how many stupid decisions that I made. But then I have to remind ourselves that Christ died for all of these million regrets that I have made. Christ died for them, and that Christ has forgiven me for all the million regrets that I have committed here. But at the same time, I remember that God knows my past. He knows my present. He knows my future. And because he knows my past, present, and future, I can totally trust in God's guidance for my life to chart a way forward that will redeem the situation. And that I can therefore trust in the Lord with all my heart and not rely on my own understanding, knowing that he will make my path straight and that he will redeem the situation out of a life of regrets that I've made. But at the same time, you know, God's knowledge of us is a comfort because we can be secure in God's love for us. If God knows my past, present, and future, he also knows my past, present, and future sins simultaneously all at once. I mean, this means that there is nothing that I can do that will surprise God. He will never say, I didn't know that you were like that. I didn't know that you were going to be so stupid, that you'll be so hard-headed, and therefore I don't want to do, have anything to do with you anymore. No, because God knows our future sins even right now. There will never be a point in time where he will be disappointed by the future sins that I do. And that's why Paul can confidently say in Romans 8 that neither the present nor the future will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of God's perfect knowledge of us, we can be secure in his love for us. And the other thing too here, it is that God's perfect knowledge of us here, the third implication, is also an invitation to ask God to examine our lives so that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Our hearts are deceitful, and many times we often deceive ourselves. But God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so many times I ask and pray, God, please save me from myself. Please save me from myself. And so this is an invitation then, you know, to pray the same prayer that David prayed in the last two verses of this Psalm 139, which is to say, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my conscience. Test me and to know any anxiety that may lead me to disobey you and lead me to not trust in you. See if there's any offensive way, anything in me that would cause you offense so that you might lead me in a way that is everlasting in a way that will provide life with you, in a way that will ultimately provide rest. And so we pray this and we ask God to search our hearts, to test our hearts, to see if there are concerns or anxieties that will distract us from our total devotion to him. And we ask him to lead us in the right course of living that will endure. Now, God's knowledge of us is perfect, it's omniscient. 
in the beginning of the sermon, we talk about chat GPT's omniscience like quality, but ultimately it is not omniscient. It doesn't know the future. It doesn't know what I'm gonna say before I say it. But more importantly, it doesn't know me. So this is I decided to just do a chat GPT. Who is Tali Lau? All right, who is Tali Lau? And chat GPT would then come up with this answer. I'm sorry, but I couldn't find any relevant information about a person named Tali Lau. It's possible that the person you're asking about is a private individual who hasn't achieved significant public <laughs> presence. <laughs> I guess I should be on Facebook a little bit more, all right, or Instagram. Uh, so, or that they go by a different name, you know. So can you please provide more context or details about who you're looking for? Even if I had a prolific social media presence, even if I were to record every minute of my life and put it on social media, chat GPT or Google will not know me. It may know a lot of things about me, but it will not have a personal and relational knowledge of me. Only, only God is able to do that. And he has a perfect and comprehensive knowledge of who we are and that wondrous knowledge. That is not a threat, but a comfort to those who belong in Christ. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you that you know us inside out. You know us more than we know ourselves. And so we ask, Lord, that you would search our hearts, that may, we may present a heart that is truly, truly dedicated to you, truly that seeks to follow you. So help us, Lord, and guide us to walk in the everlasting path. Amen. Let's stand and respond together to the truth that um, God's knowledge is a comfort to us who are um, in Christ. <laughs>